0: They're experiencing something that I'm not sure if we've realized maybe here in the United States of America, maybe you have. You see, there was a reason this letter was being written. They're receiving pressure from their family. What are you doing with Jesus? I mean, our family was doing great, and then you became a Christian, and now you don't celebrate Hanukkah with us. I mean, you don't go to the feast of Passover. Our whole family has changed because you came to Jesus. I don't know if that sounds familiar. They're also being persecuted by the government. Nero is in full swing with his persecution, and he's doing everything he can to bring an end to the Christian faith. On top of that, they've got the problems of living. And they're wondering in and of themselves, is Jesus worth it? I mean, look, I came to Christ and my whole life fell apart. Some, some are trying to tell them Jesus is just—he was just a great man. Well, we studied Hebrews chapter one, and we began to learn that the writer tells us that Jesus, Jesus was greater than the best of men, the prophets, and the prophets were great, but Jesus was greater. Jesus even said about John the Baptist, there's no greater man born among women. And Jesus is still greater than John the Baptist because Jesus is not just man, he's the God man. Some some are saying, "Well, Jesus was a heavenly being. He was like an angel, and that's what they're facing in the first century world. And though the angels are great, remember one angel wiped out 185,000 Assyrians overnight. Jesus is greater. And while the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is created, just like Michael." Michael would say to Lucifer, the Lord rebuke you, because Michael knows, and Michael has no problem worshiping Jesus because Jesus is greater. And while the Mormons believe that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer, another angel, the writer is making it very clear that Jesus is greater because only Jesus is called the Son of God. Do you remember? The father said it. There at the baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Their problem, and I don't know if you have this problem, their problem was listening to what everyone had to say instead of trusting what they had come to believe. They were listening to everyone. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, you don't need to turn there. It'll be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Okay, let's go ahead and turn there. I want you to see it. The reference is on the screen. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Do not be carried away about with various and strange doctrines. They were listening to what everyone had to say. They were feeling the pressure of the family, the persecution of the government, the problems of life had gotten to them, and the pressure and the persecution and the problems had began to cause them to wonder. I think we see this happen in the church today. I think we see people doubting faith I think we are living in a place, in a church today in the 21st century, where the seed was planted, but the enemy has come. And with the cares of the world, he's choking the seed that's been planted in the church. And it's from there he encourages the church. In Hebrews chapter 2, would you take a look at verse 1? Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed. We've got to give it everything we've got to the things we've heard. Lest we, here's the encouragement, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, so when the angels said that Sodom and Gomorrah was going down, Sodom and Gomorrah went down. How shall we escape if we neglect or we're careless careless with so great a salvation? We're not receiving judgment. We're receiving salvation. Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God, also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come. Like with this. For he has not put the world to come of which we are speaking about, of which we speak in subjection to the angels. He encourages them. He exhorts them. Don't drift away. Just in the next chapter, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, you can underline there. He says, hold on to the faith that you've been given. Because what's happening is the drift is slow. The drift is gradual, and it's moving away from the starting point. And I believe the church of the 21st century is receiving the same warning. The church of the 21st century is in danger of the drift. Whether it's the pressure of the modern culture or the modern world. The persecution that we might experience from the government. There are clearly two standards. One for Christians and one for everybody else. Christians are getting arrested today for peaceful protests. Pastor was just arrested in Canada for simply going to a pride parade and communicating John 3.16. It was on video that he was peaceful and they still arrested him. There seems to be two standards. There was a woman arrested because she was standing outside of an abortion clinic. And all she was doing was praying. Did you know it's illegal to pray now? So whether it's the pressure of the culture, or maybe it's the persecution from the government, maybe it's the problems that you're experiencing in your life. I lost my job. It's not supposed to happen when you're a Christian. I'm losing my loved one. It's not supposed to happen. Everything's supposed to be happy. Jesus, is it worth it? And my concern. My concern is that the church has desire to accommodate the culture instead of letting our light so shine. It was only last year that I watched a church do a baptism. And they had set up a water slide on the stage. And as people were coming down on the water slide, they were saying, be baptized, be baptized, be baptized. And is it possible that we're accommodating so much a culture that we've lost the holiness of God? Well, can I tell you something? In our world, there is no longer a blur of light and darkness. There's no longer a blur. Because what the church holds to is in direct opposition now to the way of the world. If the church says that this is the way it should be, the world says the exact opposite. It should be easy at your work. It should be easy at your school to point out the difference in you. It should be easy. Because the world has a way that it's going. You've got to be careful that you're not in the drift. We've got to evaluate our faith based on the standard of faith. And the standard of faith is the word of God. Amen. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. What he's saying is, have you drifted? Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Do you remember the gong show? Yeah. And you would get up there and you would start singing, there's a the light of mine. I'm going to let. And the judges were going like this as they were evaluating in you. And then all of a sudden there would be someone that would run to the gong. Now, if you don't know the gong show, you're way too young. The standard is the word of God. And Paul is not exhorting the church to see whether or not you're saved or not. He's not saying to examine yourself to see whether or not you're saved. He's saying this is not a measure of your salvation. It's making sure that you measure up by the word, not the world that you've evaluated yourself not on the person sitting next to you and where they stand in their faith, but where you stand with the word of God. That's the measurement that he's speaking about because he encourages them in something. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, he encourages them, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. You see, the writer is letting them know, I know you're going through persecution. I know you've got problems. And I know that you've got pressure from your family. But there is a world to come. This is the great salvation that he's been speaking of. It's why in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, he says of Jesus that he's been appointed the heir of all things. It's why in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, we learn that he's obtained an inheritance It's why in Hebrews chapter 1, speaking of the world to come, he says in verse 9, your throne, O God, speaking of Jesus, is forever and ever. Can I tell you something, Christian? There is a kingdom to come. Let the Christian say, Amen. amen. Now, if you didn't say amen and you're still sitting there, there could be something for you to evaluate. You see, Paul would inspire the Corinthian church the same way. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, they were dealing with the problems of life. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he would say that, therefore, don't lose heart, he would say. Therefore, don't lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our look at his perspective... For our light affliction, Paul had been in jail. He had been beat 39 or 40 times minus one. I don't know why the Bible just doesn't tell us 39 times. He had been in perils of sea, perils of robbers. He had been through much, he calls it light affliction. He says this with his perspective, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we don't look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul is encouraging the church, there is a world to come. There's a world to come. Do you believe that? Do you hold to that? He even says that we won't escape the discipline of the Lord if we're careless. He says don't neglect such a great salvation. He's going to explain it further in Hebrews chapter 12 that the Lord disciplines the son he loves. And for those of us that have forgotten that there's a world to come, the Lord will do something to remind us that there is a world to come. And I'll tell you what the problem is. Their problem is our problem. That's why Hebrews is so important for us. They were focused on the world that was in front of them, not on the world to come. One of the reasons I love going to developing countries or third world countries as they were used to be known, when you go to a third world country and you sit in their worship service, all the songs are about heaven. Because in a third world country where there's no running water, where there's no electricity, there is nothing to look forward to. I'll never forget when my wife was interviewed when we were in Liberia. And she said, now what do you love about Liberia? And she said, coming home. And they said, well, why do you say that? And she said this, because there's nothing to look forward to. You don't look forward to going to sleep because you're so hot that you don't sleep through the night. You don't look forward to eating because it's not great food. You don't look forward to going out because you don't know if you're safe or not. You don't look forward to, and she just went on and on, not in a complaining way, but giving the reality of what it means to live in a third world country. That's why when you go to a church at a third world country, their songs are about the streets of gold and the pearly gates because they don't have anything to look forward to. You know what our problem is in the church in the United States of America? We got too much to look forward to. We got summer vacation coming. We got summer vacation. I mean, we got so much to look forward to. And while their issue that they were facing in the first century world was the pressure and the persecution and the problem, our issue is comfort and convenience and complacency. You see, the problem is we like our world. I... I. I, Okay, so forgive me. I love my bed. I went to a hotel. This was about 10 years ago. I went to a hotel, and they had a dream cloud mattress. I'd never slept so good on it on my a whole life. It took me all that time to save for one. But when we moved from Dana Point to L.A., I decided I'm buying a dream cloud mattress. And let me tell you something. When I opened it up, there was a tractor mark all down the side of it. I couldn't believe it. I'd saved for a couple of years to buy this mattress. I, and, and mattresses are important. So I called the company. They had a 365-day warranty. So I called the company. And I said to them, I, go, I, I bought this brand-new mattress. I took a picture of it. It's still in the plastic. There's a tractor mark all the way down the side of it. Guess what? They told me, okay, Mr. Lowe, we're going to send you a new mattress, and your responsibility is to, give, is to get rid of the old mattress. You're not going to come pick it up? All of a sudden, that tractor mark was very attractive. I got two Dream Cloud mattresses for the price of one. But you know what my issue was? Who was I going to give it to? I took so long to save years I had slept on that. And then I decided to myself, no one deserves it. And then my daughter says to me, hey, dad, we're moving. We don't have a mattress. I looked at my wife and I said, you told her. They don't deserve it. They need to work for it. My wife was like, have you not heard of grace? She's so partial when it comes to her children. I love my mattress. I love to lay down on it. I love, you know, I'm going to Liberia in July. You know where I'm going to sleep? On a dirt floor. And you know why I go to sleep on that dirt floor? To remind me how grateful I am for the dream cloud that I get to sleep in. And every night I go home, do you know what? I cannot wait to get to my dream cloud. There's one problem with my dream cloud. My dog likes it as well. (laughs) We like this world. It's why our culture struggles with death when death is just a butler that ushers us into eternity. Our culture struggles with death. That's why we stretch our face. That's why we do everything to stay young. That's why we try to make sure you caught it. Our culture idolizes youthfulness because we're afraid of death. So the writer, he comes to an understanding. Since you're listening to what everyone has to say about Jesus in your world, the author is now going to give them four witnesses to remind them of the world to come. Since everyone's trying to convince you to leave Jesus, since everyone's trying to convince you that there is no world to come, I'm going to give you four witnesses to prove to you that there is a world to come. Would you take a look? Hebrews chapter two, chapter two. We'll pick it up there in verse three, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord Jesus. Please come to the witness stand thank you very much. You are our first witness. You have been proven to be the greatest man because you're the God man. You've been proven to be greater than angels. So we're going to call you to the witness stand first, Jesus. And we're going to know, do you believe that there's a world to come? Prove it. Luke chapter 22, take a look at the screen. Jesus, on the witness stand, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, Jesus says, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Thank you, Jesus. You've been a good witness. You've let us know there is a world to come that we should be looking forward to, not looking at this world. All right, let's call the next witness. Take a look, Hebrews chapter two. First, it was spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. This would be the apostles. Do the apostles believe in the world to come? Turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter three, keep your finger in Hebrews. We'll be back there in just a moment. 2 Peter chapter three, verse 10. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away, just like Hebrew 1 told us. Remember, it said it's going to fold up, it's going to fade away, but the king of kings would remain forever. So this world's going to come to an end. It's going to pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless... We, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Thank you, Peter, for coming to the witness stand. Peter believes in the world to come. It's why he looked at the cross after his wife was crucified. And he looked at the cross and he said, I would die on the same place that my Lord died for me. Thank you, Peter. You've been a great witness, you may step down. Could we please call the next witness to prove that there is a world to come? Well, he does. Go back with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter two. Hebrews chapter two. And there in Hebrews chapter two, he calls Jesus, he calls the apostles, and now he said, God also. Okay, we're gonna call God to the witness stand. Well, God, can you prove that there's a world to come? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will In the Greek God also God also bearing witness with both signs and wonders He's speaking presently. Now, remember, these are second-generation Christians. This is not the time of the apostles. This was second-generation Christians. And he's saying within the second-generation Christian. So within the church, even today, God is still confirming with signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, signs and wonders. These are two words that are oftentimes placed together. Now, a sign points your direction. In, points you in a direction. That's what a sign does. The green sign's on the 405. This is your exit. You need to turn off. A wonder gets your attention to look at the sign. That's what a wonder does. So a wonder would be like the yellow bleeping light on top of the green sign. You've got to turn here. This is the detour. You've got to go this way. Signs and wonders. Do you know they're still happening in the church today? They're still happening in the church today. He says God is still doing signs and wonders in the church today. God is still doing various miracles in the church today. All kinds of things are happening in the church today that can't be explained. And you know what that is? That's a miracle. That's a miracle when someone in our church is diagnosed with cancer and they go back to the doctor and the doctor can't find the cancer and the woman looks at the doctor and goes, that's Jesus. God doing great things. But he also says God's doing great things in the church to prove that there's a world to come. He has given the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now that's important. The evidence of the world to come is a gift that's been given to you. Take a look, Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, but to each one, verse seven, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So here's the deal. Each one of you in the church has a gift. I have a teaching gift. You may have a serving gift. You may have a hospitality gift. You may have a cooking gift. I love cooking gifts. You may have a leadership gift, but each one of us have been given a gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, Paul puts in parentheses, what does it mean? but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, let me help you make sense of this. In the first century world, there was no CNN. There was no Fox News, okay? Cable news did not exist. Now, what amazes me is that John, when he was writing the Revelation, he knew that cable news would exist, When the Bible says in Revelation, and the whole world watched the death of the two witnesses, he was looking at CNN. He was looking at Fox News. The whole world, satellite images were able to see. John knew that the whole world one day would be able to watch a moment in time. But in the first century world, they didn't know about CNN and Fox News. They didn't know. Now, if you want to be depressed, watch CNN. If you want to have some inspiration, go with Fox, okay? I'm kidding. Just a little. So because there was no cable news network, because there was no satellite network, the king would have to come home from battle with gifts to prove that he conquered the land. So when the king would come home and the king of Persia would come in and he would give the gifts from the Jewish temple, everybody knew... Israel went down and we won. Yes, we conquered because the king would throw like candy canes from that land to all of the people that were there in the triumphant parade. What Paul is saying is this. When Jesus went to hell and announced the gospel, he conquered death He conquered hell. And when he came and ascended into heaven, he gave the church gifts to let the church know there is a world to come. I have conquered death. That's exactly what the gifts of the Holy Spirit do. They remind us all the time, wow, look at you operating your gift. You remind me that there's a world to come. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, apostles. Thank you, God. Standing in the witness stand. But we've got one more witness. One more witness to prove there's a world to come. Take a look, Hebrews chapter 2. Now we're going to pick it up in verse 6. But one, one more, testified in a certain place. Now this one more is David. He's speaking of his born son Solomon, But the Holy Spirit makes it prophetic of Jesus. It's Psalm chapter 8 if you want to read the whole psalm later. But listen to what he says. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? As he's holding little Solomon in his hands. But the Holy Spirit is pulling this out of Psalm 8. And it's a prophetic psalm of Jesus. You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Set him Over the works of your hands, you can begin to see how the psalmist is now uh, speaking prophetically. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things under him, but we see, take a look, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Here's David, and he's holding little Solomon. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man. And then all of a sudden, David, not even probably realizing, he starts speaking of the coming Messiah. And the Holy Spirit pulls this out of Psalm 8 to prove Jesus. The Spirit pulls out of Psalms to express the prophetic Christ. See, the author knows something. The author knows that a question is forming in the mind of the person that's reading the, the letter to the Hebrews. Okay, you've said that Jesus is greater than the angels. But Jesus was a man, and it seems that angels are stronger than man. Now, remember, he's proven the case that Jesus was greater than the angels, but they're still struggling with this idea that Jesus was a man. So he speaks to the question, and he pulls out Psalm 8, and he makes it very clear, you're right, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. He became a man. But the resurrection of Jesus proves that he's also the son of God. Look at Romans chapter 1 verse 4. Romans chapter 1. He was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection proves that he is the God-man. Now here's the beauty. As man, he lived a sinless life and paid the price of our sin. To God be the glory. As God, he rose from the grave so that he would be the only one that could give us eternal life. He's the God man. Now the problem is none of us have ever walked in the streets of gold. None of us have ever gone through the pearly gates. If you have, you're a living miracle. Thank you for coming back. You're probably miserable. None of us have seen the mansions in glory. We've seen movies where it looks a little cloud-like and, you know, Peter's in this beautiful robe. And for some reason, they're all like, I don't know, Hollywood makes heaven look weird, you know? I'm sure it looks like Montana. I mean, with an ocean. It's got to have an ocean. I mean, please, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you have to understand, there are some areas on the face of this earth that have been barely touched by the impact of sin. There are some places that man has not trodden on our earth. And when you get there and you look at God's creation, you can only imagine what the crystal sea is like when you see a lake that's reflecting all of the mountains around them. I mean, heaven has got to be incredible if earth is just a reflection. It's not just a cloud-like spiritual place. It's a real place with, listen, if we wear gold around our neck and we say, look at the gold Look at the dangly things in my ears. I mean, look at the gold around my neck. Look at the cha-ching on my, on my, on my, um, what are these? Uh, Bracelets. (laughs) Anklets. I was going to say anklets, but this is not an ankle. (laughs) If what we say is so wonderful that we wear it around us to adorn ourselves, God says, Heaven is so wonderful, I use what you think is wonderful as asphalt in heaven. You think gold is so great, I use it for my driveway. Imagine what heaven is going to be. Just imagine for a moment. Please do not lose sight. The problem is we've never seen it. And what the author is trying to get across to us, we haven't seen the world to come but we have seen Jesus. We don't see the world to come, but we do see Jesus. And what the author gives us now is he fully explains what we see about Jesus. Now this word, would you to go back with me, take a look if you would. Would you look at verse 9? But we see Jesus. This word see, it means we take notice of Jesus. And what the author is going to do, he's going to point us to something that we see in Jesus so that we can take notice that we're going to be with Jesus in the world to come. It's important that we see Jesus in this light that he's being presented. Because I'm concerned with pressures, problems, persecution, I'm concerned with comfort, convenience, and complacency that even we could drift away. Oh, Pastor Chet, I'm a double dipper. I'm here on Thursday nights. I love the Word of God. Have you ever had a problem in your life and You said or did something that you wish you wouldn't have said or done. Can the church say, amen? Amen. Amen. Imagine if you went from problem problem to problem to problem to problem to problem to problem to problem. And all of a sudden, you begin like this church. Is this worth it? That's where this church was. And we can't enter Hebrews and go, oh, those poor, pitiful first century people. We've got to stop for a moment and evaluate ourselves. Let me give you an example. Many of us, including myself, come from different countries. We're immigrants, okay? I'm from the Bahamas. Now, let me tell you something. You can take the boy out of the Bahamas, but you can't take the Bahamas out of the boy. I am a Bahamian. I like conch, fried fish, Peas and rice, macaroni and cheese. And even you can hear a little bit of my accent coming out as soon as I start talking. Listen to me. Let me tell you something. I am not a this, that, and the other. I'm a this, that, and the other. That's where I come from. (laughs) I had to learn to speak like this. But I've been in the United States for a long time. And when I go back, I realize... I've made some accommodations to where I currently live. I've drifted away from my Bahamian accent and from my Bahamian culture. It's because where I live, in the United States of America, I've become American. I'm not saying that's bad, I'm just saying that's the reality i become more American than I am Bahamian. But when I go back to the Bahamas, it reminds me where I've come from and I quickly drop my American ways and I all of a sudden become Bahamian again. This is why it's so important to keep Jesus in our sight. This is why he says, I know you can't see the world to come, but you can see Jesus. Let me give you an example. Americans, when you meet someone, you do this. Hello, how are you? Your next question is this what do you do? That's what you care about. Now, I'm an American, and I understand that, okay? You care about what you do. You care about, I want to know your career. I want to know if you went to college. I want to know what do you do. So when I go back to the Bahamas, and I'm meeting someone for the first time, I say, hello, how are you? What do you do? They quickly correct me. We don't ask, hello, how are you? What do you do? We ask, hello, how are you? Who's your daddy? I want to know where you come from. Because if your dad is good, you must be good. If your dad is bad, we want nothing to do with you. (laughs) Because in the Bahamas, we don't care what you do. We care where you come from. But when I am in the United States, I drift away from that. I don't mean to. But it's because of the culture that I'm in. That's why it's important we live in this world. We've got to keep our sight on Jesus. And that's what the author is trying to do to get our sight back on Jesus to see him. It's important for us to see Jesus. It's important for us to take notice of him because it gets us back into our kingdom culture. So look what the author does. Look what the author does. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll pick it up now in verse 10. He will give us four things, and I want you to write them down. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, so in bringing a lot of people to heaven, to make the captain, there's the word, of their salvation perfect, through sufferings. So what he's going to do, he's going to get our sight on Jesus on why it was important that he became a little lower than the angels. Why it was important that he became the God-man. And the first is, he's our captain. He's our captain. That's important, that word. That word means pioneer. That word means our leader. And I love this about Jesus. He didn't lead us by simply telling us, like Muhammad, how you can get to heaven. He, he didn't lead us by simply telling us how we get to heaven. That's not what he did. Because bringing sons to glory means we get saved. That's what it means. We get to go to heaven. We get to go to the world to come. He showed us how to get to heaven by becoming a man. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He became a man. And by coming a man, he gets us. He understands us. Jesus gets us. Okay? That us at the bottom of Jesus, he gets us. He understands who we are. Let me tell you about a captain. I come from a fishing family. And a captain... Becomes a captain because of many seafaring days. In fact, my son in law is a mariner. He just went out to sea. He's going to be gone for 45 days. He was a third mate. And after he got enough hours, he's now a second mate. And then he wants to be a captain. And what's going to happen is the more and more time that he gets on the sea, the more and more he will grow in rank to become the captain. God knew it would be difficult for us to follow him if he didn't suffer along with us. So he became a man. Let me give you an example. People aren't worshiping Greek gods anymore. You know why? The Greeks got tired of the gods who weren't human telling them what to do, and they had no idea what it was to be a human. So you don't see people worshiping Zeus anymore. Because they're tired of the gods, or let me say fallen angels, telling them what to do. Jesus became a man. He gets us. He understands us. And as a captain, so he started from the baby and worked himself on up. And he lived a life of an example for us. He's our captain. He pioneered this faith. He set the example for us. And he did it as a man. He laid aside his divinity so that he might be able to set an example for us. He's a captain. He's our captain. Take a look at the next. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. For which reason, key phrase, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I'll sing praise to you. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Stop there if you would. Not only is he our captain, he's our brother. He's our brother. You know, amazing thing about family is you can't get rid of them. All of you have got that uncle that you wish just wasn't your uncle. Amazing thing about family No matter what they do, they will always be your blood. No matter what they do. Jesus is our brother. He made us holy. By his death, by his burial, by his resurrection, he made us family. And because we believe, we're now in Christ. Now, take a look at 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. I think it's gonna be up there. Okay. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians, this is a bonus verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But of him, speaking of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1 30, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. None of us can claim we got ourselves to heaven. It's because Jesus died on the cross that we are in Christ. Jesus gave us his spirit, by which Romans 8 says, we can cry out, Abba, Father. Do you remember when Jesus was teaching us how to pray? Do you remember what he said to the disciples, those that believe? When you pray, say, our Father. He's our brother. And the fact that he made us holy is very important. Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 2. He says, I will declare your name to my brethren. I will declare... I will let everyone know that I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the only way that people can get saved. I don't care what the world says, I'm the way. I will declare it. Then he says this, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. In the midst of the assembly, when we all get to heaven, Christians, every tribe, tongue, and nation, we are all, with our brother Jesus, going to be praising God the Father. Let the church say, amen. So we're going to be saved people that go to glory. But can I tell you something about saved people? Saved people are not perfect people. Say amen. amen. Don't look at your spouse. <laughs> saved people are not perfect people. And here's what Jesus says about that. I'm not ashamed of them. I know they're not perfect. Perfect. And as our older brother, he sets an example for us. That's why he says, and again, I'm not ashamed of him, but I will put my trust in him. No matter the persecution, no matter the problems, no matter the pressure that I'm feeling, Jesus, as our older brother, sets an example. Do you remember with the persecution and the pressure and the problems of life, when he was there on the cross, he said to God, his Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you despite the pressure, despite the problems, and despite the issues that I am walking through with persecution. I know there's a world to come. And into your hands, I commit my spirit. Thank you, brother Jesus, for setting an example for us. Thank you, Jesus. But not only is he the older brother, would you take a look at verse 13b? Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Do you remember when Philip asked Jesus in John chapter 14, hey, show us the Father. (laughs) And Jesus looks at Philip and goes, dude. Now, I don't know if he said dude, but in my (laughs) vernacular. Look at him and goes, dude, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me you've seen the father because jesus and the father are one and what the writer of hebrews is saying is the father is not ashamed of you so john would write this to the church look what he would write first john chapter 3 he would say this behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be. We haven't seen the world to come, but we know that when He's revealed, because we've seen Him, we shall be like Him. For we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. it was important that God made us holy it was important that our older brother he died for us and made us holy, so that when we mess up, God provides a way that if we sin, we can confess our sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness he's not ashamed of us. He t- tells us, if you mess up, come to me. I'll forgive you. Amen? Thank you, Jesus, for being older, brother. Thank you, Jesus. Take a look at what else he says in verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, as if we need to be reminded, and release those who through the fear of death were all their life subject to bondage. It sounds like the 21st century. People are afraid to die. Not only is our brother, not only is our captain, he is our conqueror. He's our conqueror. He was made a little lower than the angels, and he became a man so that he could die on the cross and destroy the work of the devil. Now, the word destroy here, the word destroy means to render him powerless. Let me tell you the big weapon that the enemy would pull out of his pocket. The big weapon he would pull out of his pocket was death. That was the big enemy. And Jesus conquered death on the cross through the resurrection. So Christians don't fear death. We don't fear death. And nor do we live our lives in fear of death. You see, the reason why everyone doesn't want to get old is because no one wants to die. But not for the believer. For the believer, death is simply a servant that escorts us to the Savior. That's all death is. I'll never forget Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, when they laid hands on me and my wife and my four-month-old child, and we were on our way to Liberia. A man walked up to me after they laid hands on us, and he said to me, you're the most selfish man I've ever met in my life. I said, really? I'm 24 years old. Because you're the most selfish man. You're taking your wife and you're taking your child to die in a war-torn country. And if you die over there or if they die over there, it's your fault. That's what he said to me. And you know what I said to him? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The problem with most Christians is that we are holding on to our life when we're to be dead already. Someone challenged Andrea just recently for going on the streets in Seattle and ministering to prostitutes. And I looked, and as I was in the conversation, I said, if Andrea was to die on the streets in Seattle, she's dead already. She lives because Christ lives in her. Church, the problem with the church is we're still holding on to our dream clouds. We're still holding on to this world, but Jesus came to conquer this world. He came to conquer death. We have another world that we're looking forward to. Don't allow comfort and complacency and convenience the three deadly seas to keep your mind from seeing Jesus, who's our conqueror, that conquered this world for the sake of giving you another one. Finally, and here's where I close. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels... But he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. In other words, angels can't be saved. When they made the decision to be a demon, you are a demon for eternity. Angels can't be saved. They don't have the ability to be saved. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. He had to become a man that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Church, finally, he's our high priest. Now, most of us are not Jewish. And we do. (laughs) Alyssa alone understands this point. God bless you. Most of us are not Jewish or have an Old Testament huge understanding history about what the high priest is. But the high priest was a mediator. He was a mediator between God and the people. He would make the sacrifices. He'd go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. He was supposed to be the standard bearer of faith. The problem was they were fallible men. Let me mention one, Eli. Eli. Okay, had some major issues as the high priest. Another problem is that their ministry could not save the people. It only atoned over the people. But Jesus is our high priest. That means he's our mediator. And because he was a man, he's not mad at you. He's merciful. I get it. He says, I get it. I know what temptation is. He really understands our plight. He knows what we're going through. And because he gets us, he's not mad at us. Can you listen, please? He's not mad at you. I don't know why the church is mad at the world, but he loves the world. He loves everyone in the world, even the one you don't like. He's not mad at you for what you did yesterday. He gets you, and he has mercy available for you. As God, oh, he set the example on how to live. There is something for us to attain to, but he's able to help us when we're tempted. You see, this word aid, it means he's there to help. So when I feel that I'm being tempted, he says, call out and ask for my spirit to help you fight temptation. I want to close by going to James chapter 4 because I think this will help us make sense of the kind of high priest he is. As the high priest, he's given us the way back. Listen. James chapter 4. I'm going to pick it up in verse uh, 6. He gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now listen to how he describes what humility looks like. Listen, church. James chapter 4, now verse 7. He says this. Here's humility. Therefore, submit to God. That means if you've heard something in this Bible study and you're convicted in your spirit, give it everything you've got to be holy. Just submit to God. Then he says this, listen, resist the devil, stand against him, and he'll run away from you. You've got to go to war. There is nothing passive about Christianity. Paul says, put on the new man. That's you. That's your responsibility. Put off the new. Let me tell you something. The devil is a strategic little guy. And he is out to kill, steal, and destroy. You can't sit on the bench thinking you'll survive. Resist him. Stand against him. Then he says this. Draw near to God. And look at the promise. He'll draw near to you. When you're tempted, let it be something in you that says, I need to cry out to God now. I need the power of the Spirit now. Draw near to God. And then he says, cleanse, excuse me, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen, if you're going on a diet, throw away the ice cream in the freezer. Don't think to yourself, "I can keep that sin in the freezer, and I'll be able to stand." When you're an ice cream addict like I am, if you're going to tell yourself, "I'm saying goodbye to Häagen-Dazs," throw it away. You can't. Listen, church. You can't think. Listen. We are sinaholics. And I don't know which sin it is that you struggle with, but if you take a sip, you're going all the way. Get rid of it. Cleanse your hands. Then he says this Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's serious about this. He says, Repent, step before God. He's not ashamed of you, He's there to give you mercy. But just go to him. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And he'll lift you up. Let me tell you something, church. Let me tell you something. There's nothing like the feeling of I'm forgiven. Father, thank you so much for your word. To God be the glory. And I just pray in Jesus' name that you'd minister to your church. Just a matter of your hands up. Who needs to draw near to God tonight? I want to pray for you. Just lift up your hand and surrender and say, that's me, pastor. I need to draw near. That you're just so thankful for your brother. You're so thankful for the captain. You're so thankful for the conqueror. You've had your eyes on this world, and now it's time to put your eyes on him. I see your hands. Just leave them up and surrender. Just leave them up and surrender. And Father, I pray for every hand that's lifted all over this room. We see you. Tonight we have taken notice. Our eyes have been on the world, but now our eyes are on you. Forgive us, Jesus. Thank you for not being ashamed of us. Thank you for understanding our plight and having mercy. We need it. We depend on it. So we come before you confessing whatever sin it might be, even if your eyes have just been on the world. You just speak to God now. Your hands are lifted in surrender. We ask God, cleanse us, purify us. Purify us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message.